Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Job chapter 16. The McChain plan, or the RMM plan, has us reading two chapters today, which is actually very helpful because Job's speech is best considered as a comprehensive whole. In chapter 15, we began the second round of speeches with a spirited response by Eliphaz. Eliphaz was very concerned lest the essential connection between sin and suffering be severed by Job's argument. Again, we're reminded that this isn't merely a conversation between four friends. This is a public dialogue between the four wisest men on planet Earth attempting to make sense of Job's extraordinary suffering. Job has argued that God's ways are mysterious, possibly even arbitrary, at least from our perspective, and that his situation represents a clear exception to the general rule that particular suffering relates to particular sin. Eliphaz is shocked that a man of Job's stature would make such a claim. The effect of that proposition on the cause of public religion would be catastrophic. People need to be afraid that wicked behavior will result in certain suffering, he contends. And therefore, he doubles down on his basic contention. People do get what they deserve in this life, even if the consequences are occasionally delayed. But if you wait for it, eventually everyone does reap what they sow. The wise become rich and the wicked become poor. The righteous are blessed and the sinful are cursed consistently, if not immediately, in this life. That's the argument Eliphaz makes. Even though he effectively throws Job under the bus in order to make that argument. Because if that is how the world works, then obviously Job is getting what he deserves. He is reaping what he has sown. If he can't spot the connection between his suffering and his sin, well, maybe he just needs to zoom out a little bit. Maybe the sin was from a long time ago and the consequences have been delayed. But the system works, Job. The equation is fair and consistent over the long haul. So find your sin, repent of it, and you will be immediately restored. That was Eliphaz's speech in chapter 15. And in these two chapters, Job begins to offer his response. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 16. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do. If you were in my place, I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. Again, Job is growing tired of fortune cookie wisdom. Good things happen to good people. We will reap what we sow. Our sin shall find us out. I know all of that. I have a PhD in fortune cookie wisdom, okay? But my situation represents a challenge to our way of thinking. Why won't any of you acknowledge that? 
If you won't deal honestly with the facts before us, then just shut up. Why do you keep talking if you aren't going to say anything new? Saying the same simple things over and over and over again doesn't make them true in this particular situation. John Calvin says with great pastoral wisdom here, By this we are admonished when we wish to comfort neighbors in their sorrows and trials, not to jump to conclusions, as there are many who are forever harping on the same string, and they do not consider the person to whom they speak. For we must treat one person differently from another person. Closed quote. Calvin is saying, in order for us to be useful as a counselor, we have to take the time to really understand the other person's situation. Counseling isn't about deciding which one of your theological bumper stickers to use as a band-aid in this particular situation. Counseling is about entering in, identifying, empathizing, and then finally, interceding. A hurting person needs you to speak to God for them as them because they are too wounded to form coherent thoughts and prayers. And then later on in the process, a hurting person needs you to speak to them on behalf of God. That is the process Job was hoping for, but it's a long way from what he actually experienced. His counselors acted more like the self-appointed public relations department for organized religion. They are managing the crowd more than ministering to Job. Verse 6, if I speak, my pain is not assuaged, and if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company, and he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They massed themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. Here, Job flatly contradicts the main assertion of Eliphaz. Eliphaz has said that Job is acting in a hostile fashion towards God. On the contrary, says Job, it is God who has acted with hostility towards me. He has worn me out. He has robbed me of friendship. He has torn me in his wrath like a roaring lion in the field. He is ripping me apart for no apparent reason. There's no violence in my hands. There's nothing wrong with my conduct. My prayer is pure. There's nothing wrong with my religious observances for no apparent reason. God has become my enemy. Now, 
Eliphaz is scandalized by this whole train of thought on Job's part, but he really needn't be. There is no question that God can act as an enemy towards his own people. In Hosea 5.14, for example, we read, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. In fact, what Job says here sounds almost exactly the same as what Hezekiah said about God in Isaiah 38. He said, like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. So there is widespread agreement in the Bible that sometimes for reasons of his own, God can act as the enemy of his people. Combining this with what we've already learned in chapter one and two, we might say that from time to time, God can act as our enemy by giving permission to our actual enemy to do us harm for reasons of his own. Job is beginning to press up against the truth here. And the realization of what is happening to him becomes a source of tremendous pain. Francis Anderson summarizes usefully saying, Job holds tenaciously to two facts. He is guilty of no grave fault, and God is entitled to do what he pleases. But it is infinitely painful to Job that God is now inexplicably acting like an enemy, closed quote. The sheer weight of physical, spiritual, and psychological suffering has reduced Job to a shell of his former self. He is wasting away. He's constantly weeping. His face is red and puffy in verse 16, and he is constantly adorned in the costume of the mourner. That's what verse 15 means. It's an odd expression, but the gist of it is easy to get at. Tremper Longman III explains succinctly, mourning has become part and parcel of who he is. Verse 18. O earth, cover not my blood. Let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. Now, we've spoken several times about the heights and depths of Job's faith throughout the storm of this unprecedented suffering. Here we have a moment of stunning clarity and insight. Job is beginning to realize that his best hope for understanding and just treatment are actually on the other side of death. He expresses a belief here in some sort of friend or advocate who will help him make his case to God in the next life. Look at verse 19. He says, my witness is in heaven. Look at verse 21. He will argue the case of a man before God as a son of man does with his neighbor. That is breathtaking faith for a man of Job's time. Who is this friend? Who is this advocate who will stand before God and, and between God and man like a son of man does with a neighbor? 
Now, obviously, many people see this as a direct anticipation of Jesus Christ. Others think that a step too far. Tremper Longman III, for example, would rather say that Job here articulates a desire that was ultimately fulfilled in Christ, but he will not credit that Job actually believes this at the time. How could Job, living in the time of Moses or whenever it was that he actually lived, how could a man that far back in the Old Testament see this far forward with this much clarity into the heart and soul of New Testament realities? Now, I personally have no problem with the idea that Old Testament writers and prophets sometimes speak far better than they know. The New Testament itself tells me to believe that. In 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, Peter says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Peter says that the writers and prophets of the Old Testament said stuff about Jesus, filled as they were with the Spirit of Jesus, that they did not fully understand. They wanted to understand it. They leaned in and they wrestled with the vague hopes and convictions that the Spirit of Christ had put in their hearts and minds. And they gave voice to those things, even if they didn't have all the details worked out precisely. Why can't that be what's going on here? In my mind, that has to be what's going on here. Job is speaking better than he knows. And he is expressing here the hope that there will be a friend in heaven who will stand before him and between him and God and who will take up his cause as his own and secure a lasting peace. That is is the gospel, if ever I've heard it. Job doesn't know the name of his friend, but he has the the gist of the gospel as far as I'm concerned. As mentioned, this is one of those breathtaking heights in the book of Job, followed characteristically by a rapid descent back into despair. Do not expect consistent faith or consistent orthodoxy from a friend in terrible pain. Expect vacillation. Expect exhaustion. Expect inconsistency. Job may be inspired, but he is not at his personal or intellectual best. He is, as we've said many times now, a man on fire. We observe his descent back into despair in chapter 17. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. Lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me, since you have closed their hearts to understanding? Therefore, you will not let them triumph. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. Job believes that he is near death, and so he hands his friends over to God's tribunal. Job believes that God knows of his own innocence. Job doesn't believe that God is 
punishing him. He believes that he is abusing him. But still, he trusts in the goodness of God. God must have a reason. I don't know what it is, but I hold on to my belief in his justice, and therefore I hand over my friends to them, he says. God himself has created the evidence that so convincingly convicts me in their eyes. Therefore, it's up to him to vindicate me before them. Verse 6. He's made me a byword of the peoples, and I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim with vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. The upright are appalled at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the godless. Yet the righteous holds to his way, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. Here, Job seems to be saying that God has made him what he is. He is the ultimate author of my predicament. And the upright are appalled at this. Those who truly think about it, those who wrestle with what is actually going on, are appalled. And yet not ultimately dissuaded, not ultimately and finally deterred in our pursuit of answers. Verse 10. But you, come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. Job is obviously speaking again to his friends here. He goes back and forth from talking to God and talking to them. Verse 11, my days are past. My plans are broken off. The desires of my heart, they make night into day. The light, they say, is near to the darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? shall we descend together into the dust? This section is very hard to translate, but one thing is perfectly clear. Job wants to die. He has become convinced that his chances of justice and a fair hearing are better in the afterlife than they are here. And there is nothing but pain for him here, so he just wants to die. He would welcome it. Death would be like a warm blanket that he would just sink down into and rest from all his suffering, from all his agony, rest. And there is the prospect of a fair hearing before God. Fair and mediated. That sounds far better than his situation down here. So let's go. You're welcome to come with me, he says. That way we can find out together what is really going on. Even here in Job's darkest moments, there is that tiny sliver of brilliant light. Job has settled on one remarkably true thing. Death is not the end. Death is the end of earthly struggles and suffering, but it is not the end of human experience. There is an after life. And that after life involves a meeting with Almighty God where we may find justice, truth, vindication, and even potentially help from one like a son of man. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. 
For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 